0: Please be seated. Our first reading is Matthew 27, verses 24 to 31. You can find this on page 999 in the Red Bibles. We have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back, and page numbers for those are on the screen. So, Matthew 27, starting to read at verse 24. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. They led him away to crucify him. This is the word of the Lord. Around about the time I graduated, there was a short film clip that was shown as part of a few of the courses I went on. And as an introduction, we were told that we would be shown a film about a basketball match... And that we were to watch it really carefully and count the number of passes the teeming black shirts made to each other. We watched it and gave our answers wondering what the point of the exercise was. We were then asked if we'd noticed anything strange. And as we watched the film again, to our amazement, we saw a person dressed up as a gorilla walk across the screen. Even though we had been carefully watching the film, we had failed to see what was in front of our very eyes. How had we missed it? How could we have been so blind? In Matthew's account, we are made witnesses to the crucifixion of Christ and the blindness of those around him as to who Jesus really was. They did not see the King of Kings, the Lord of heaven and earth, Alpha and Omega, who was right in front of their very eyes. They rejected him and sent him to his death. Indeed, it had to be so for the fulfilment of scripture. I'm going to focus on the Roman soldiers and their interaction with Jesus. Let's walk through these verses together and see what they reveal to us. Verse 26 Jesus was flogged and then handed over to be crucified. So a few words hide what was a truly barbaric act. It was the practice that prisoners due to be crucified would be flogged, and this was the case with Jesus. Often this flogging would lead to death, such was its violence. It was a soldiers' job to flog the prisoners, and yet we see in the verses that follow that their actions went beyond what their job entailed. The soldiers took Jesus into the courtyard where the company of soldiers was gathered. Now this might have been around 200 soldiers and probably a lot more. The soldiers then, for entertainment, proceeded to humiliate Jesus, little knowing that with every move they showed him to be the king that he professed to be. They sought to belittle him, but the irony is that in their play they revealed who Jesus really was, king of not only the Jews, but of the whole world, seen and unseen. In their eyes, he was a man with his humanity laid bare before them, a mere man not far from death. So what did they do as they set their eyes on Jesus? They decided to heap more suffering and humiliation on him. They had beaten his body and they sought to break his spirit as well. Verse 28. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. He was naked and totally vulnerable in front of them. They placed a scarlet robe on him. In the Greek translation, the word that translates to scarlet also translates to purple. The colour of this robe is significant as purple was the colour of royalty. The soldiers sought to mock Jesus' claim to kingship, but they did not know what was really going on. Isaiah 1, 18 reads, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Can you see the significance here? Jesus carried the sins of these soldiers and our sins on his back and later up onto the cross and died so that we would be forgiven. They were mocking the man who would give his life to save them and to save us. The humiliation continued, verse 29. And then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it onto his head. Is there a more obvious symbol of kingship than a crown? But with this crown they only sought to cause him pain. There is also significance in the crown being made of thorns, Thorns came into the world with the fall. Genesis 3, verse 17. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. In laying down his life for us, Jesus was to become cursed as he took all our sins onto himself. Verse 29. They put a staff in his right hand. This completed their picture of the make-believe king. Oh, how they must have laughed and cheered at the picture before them. How pathetic he must have looked to them. Some translations describe Jesus being given a stick or a reed, and yet the scepter was a symbol of strength, of rule, of the obedience of the people. What could have been further from the truth in their eyes? The soldiers did not stop there. Having dressed him up, their outrages continued. Verse 29, they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews. To kneel down in front of someone is a mark of reverence or subservience. The soldiers did it to mock Jesus. But the greatest irony is that they were kneeling at the feet of the right person and they confessed his majesty. As I read these words... These verses from Philippians are always at the forefront of my mind. Philippians 2, 8-11 And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted himself to the highest place and gave him the name that is above all other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We focus so far on the actions of the soldiers and their blindness, but what of Jesus' response to what was happening to him? In these verses, there are no cries, no pleas for it all to stop, nothing. Jesus is silent. He had predicted his death many times, he knew what was going to happen to him, and he bore it all willingly. There was nothing that he wouldn't suffer in order to win our freedom. It's incredible. It's a level of sacrifice and love that is so hard for us to fully comprehend. This Good Friday, as we look at this familiar story, may we be challenged anew to be people that have open eyes, And hearts to the message of the gospel and to live lives of service that honour the sacrifice Jesus made for us all. Let's have a time of quiet and then I'll lead us in prayer. Lord, as we think about all you suffered at the hands of the Roman soldiers, We are horrified by their cruelty. But we also know that as we condemn them, we condemn ourselves, as it was also our sin that sent you to the cross. We are so grateful, so thankful for your sacrifice. Thank you for loving us so much more than we can imagine. Help us to live lives in light of all that you've done for us. Amen.
1: We're going to carry on reading from Matthew's Gospel, so it's Matthew chapter 27, and we're picking up at verse 32. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right, And one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So we pick up again with the soldiers. I don't know if it strikes you when you look at these verses, including the ones that Lorraine talked us through but it's really quite surprising that the soldiers are the ones in the spotlight. You'd think Jesus would be the focus, but our eyes are drawn to the soldiers. It's their movements we follow, not Jesus. If you look down at the verses, you'll notice again and again Matthew uses the word they. They, the Roman soldiers, dressed in their armor and sandals, possibly wearing those little helmets with the feathers sticking out the top. Try to picture the scene. They met a man called Simon. And they forced him, compelled him to carry the cross for Jesus. They arrived at Golgotha. They no doubt were leading the way on this walk. They offered Jesus a drink. Then they crucified him. They cast lots for Jesus' clothes. And then they sat down, presumably below the cross, to watch and guard him. And they placed the plaque above his head the King of the Jews. Tucked away, almost hidden in the list of these actions, is Jesus' crucifixion. It's stated without any extra detail. Our imaginations don't get the chance to picture Jesus being lifted and nailed to the cross. Matthew almost seems to gloss over it. He persists in keeping the soldiers in the foreground and Jesus in the background. We know more about the last drop of drink that touched Jesus' lips than what it was physically like for our saviour when he hung on the cross isn't that a bit odd doesn't that strike you as strange that the soldiers are at the centre of this that we don't get any details about the agonising death and then Matthew he moves away from the soldiers in verse 33 but he still doesn't turn our gaze to Jesus now the focus moves to the other people around him First off, we see the two rebels, the criminals on either side of Jesus. Then we learn that people are passing by the cross. It's not a private execution. There's lots of people there, and the people passing by are shouting up insults. Even the religious leaders, they all come by to mock him. And there's two criminals, and the two criminals on either side, they add their insults. So we have this scene where Jesus is silent on the cross, and everyone around him is shouting. Those insulting Jesus were blind to who he really was. Just like the soldiers who dressed Jesus up as king, their comments are full of irony. In their insults and their mockery, they spoke real truths about Jesus. He's the king of Israel? Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. It sort of makes sense. They couldn't comprehend how a genuine son of God the creator of the world, would die on a cross like a common criminal. What true God would suffer such humiliation? He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. And yet we know it was at that very moment that he was in fact saving others. So verbal abuse was coming from all quarters, and there's no mention of anyone speaking up for Jesus. Can you picture the lonely scene where everyone turned on Jesus and he wasn't heard to utter a single word in retaliation. The soldiers crucified him. The crowds mocked him. And Jesus stays silent. The way Matthew records the crucifixion scene is so intriguing. He doesn't create this dramatic retelling of Jesus' gruesome death. You might have expected that the Messiah's death would be described in minute detail every agonising breath recorded for posterity. Maybe you want to accuse Matthew of downplaying the event, of stripping it off the emotion with this matter-of-fact style. But it begs the question, why did he write it like this? Well, I think this understated account has a profound sense of realness. He doesn't dress it up or charge it with emotion. Its simplicity speaks for itself. It helps the reader to pick up on what's important. By centering on the drama happening all around Jesus, his stillness stands out in marked contrast. Jesus, a silent figure in the hands of the soldiers surrounded by spiteful people. It's not the pain and the suffering which makes his death so significant. It's his ready willingness to die, his silent compliance on the way to his death. This is the important detail. Matthew is trying to help us realise the huge prophetic fulfilment of this historic moment. Jesus' death is the central event of God's redemption plan. Remember the Passover lamb. Ever since the Israelites had been rescued from Egypt, they held the Passover feast so that they would never forget the Passover lamb. Every year, for thousands of years, they remembered that sacrificial lamb. And 700 years before this moment on the cross... God prophesied through Isaiah explicitly about a suffering servant, another Passover lamb. They to expect one who would suffer and be despised, one who would be led like a lamb to the slaughter. So the real drama of this crucifixion event wasn't visible to the naked eye. The suffering was no doubt awful, but the silent submission of Jesus was the real drama. Jesus, the long-awaited, Passover Lamb, led by the soldiers, scorned by the crowds. This was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Now, just as I finish, if you could turn to Isaiah 53, and that's on page 741. This was the prophecy that was made 700 years before Jesus was on the cross And I'm going to give you um, a few minutes to just look over those verses. um, Isaiah 53, maybe starting from verse 3, and reflect on Isaiah's prophecy being fulfilled by Jesus on that first Easter Friday. And I'll come and close us in prayer after a couple of minutes. Father, in your infinite wisdom, you planned and purposed for your innocent son to be the lamb who would bear the wrath for the sins of mankind. We each turn to our own way, but you in your great mercy punish Jesus in our place. We marvel at Jesus, at his silence, at his willingness to endure such a humiliating, agonizing, lonely death. The perfect one assigned a grave with the wicked. We praise and we worship the Lamb who died so that we could live. In his name we pray. Amen.
2: From Matthew 27, beginning at verse 45. Uh, Beginning at verse 45, before that section. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, "Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani," which means, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" When some of those standing there heard this, they said, "He's calling Elijah." Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out, again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection, and they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened. They were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. The song we just sang was written by Graham Kendrick, and it was written about uh, a day after the death of Princess Diana. You'll remember that, um, well, it's a day after the funeral cortege of uh, of uh, Princess Diana. You remember the flowers were all over London and around Buckingham Palace. And he reflected on the death of Jesus and he was saying, as, he re- as we sang in the song, I long for the day when we when we honour the death of the Saviour. And so that's what we've been trying to do today, to honour the death of the Saviour. And we're looking now at Matthew 27 verse 45, and we are literally at the crux of the story of Jesus' death from Matthew's Gospel. And as we've kind of looked at it, we've seen various themes. The soldiers have appeared uh, as, as significant. And we've seen contrasts as well. On the one hand, you could look at it like this. On the other hand, you could look at it like this last night we were thinking about uh, the night before jesus died and we 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 thought of the the woman anointing his head for burial with that expensive perfume on the one hand he's worth everything i've got and then we saw judas 30 pieces of silver well now he's died that's all he's worth so you get this contrast we're going to look at three As it were, witnesses. The first witness is the witness of nature. So on the one hand, on the there is darkness from noon until three. It's over the whole land, not over the whole earth, it's over the whole land. So it's over Israel. It's beyond the borders of Israel, it would lose its significance. Now we don't know how it happened. Lots of theories about how it happened. But the Old Testament points us to why it happened. There are two passages about darkness. One is in Exodus 10 when uh, Moses is told by God to stretch out his hand so that darkness would come over the whole land of Egypt. It was a darkness that could be felt. It was judgment on the land of Egypt. One of the judgments, indeed, on that land. But later, very famously, the prophet Amos uh, writes this In that day, chapter 8 of Amos, in that day declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious feasts into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. The darkness then on the one hand signifies there is a judgment going on, a day of mourning, judgment. Is it judgment on the people who crucified Jesus? Or is it, as we've already intimated, judgment on the Son of God for the sins of the people? We'll see, I think it's the latter. Now, on the other hand, there's another uh, nature event and this is when Jesus dies and he, he, he makes this loud cry. He gives up his spirit. And the curtain of the temple is torn in two. Um, a, a significant event signifying access to God. But at that moment, it tells us there was an earthquake. Extraordinary uh, tremor. There is a fault line that goes through Jerusalem right at that spot. It's now where the temple uh, of the dome is, the uh, the, um, the Muslim temple. There's a fault line going through there and there is damage, I'm told, um, to buildings at certain intervals. Uh, maybe the earthquake was linked with the rending of the temple uh, curtain. We don't know. And we know that uh, uh, after or, or when Jesus was raised... Because those verses should really appear in a, in a bracket, as it were, kind of halfway through verse 51 and, and onwards. Um, or verse 52, the bodies of many holy people, they, they, they rose up at, um, at Jesus' resurrection. and Many people saw them. A strange and unusual sign. But a picture, not of judgment, but of life. And why should nature not respond at the death of Jesus, but also at the resurrection of Jesus? Why should nature not respond? (laughs) Romans chapter 8 tells us that creation is waiting, is groaning for the revealing of the sons of God. It's waiting for salvation. It wants to be liberated from its bondage to decay. And as a result of Jesus dying and his death and the splitting open of the curtain, that is the beginning of the revelation of the sons of God. That's the beginning of new life. And if you are longing for nature, as people are these days, to be restored and liberated, it's probably not the best thing to stick yourself to a bus. Probably the best thing to become a Christian. Actually, the two things are so joined together. Creation is waiting for that moment. On the one hand, judgment, darkness. On the other, the, the earthquake signifying life. The second is the witness of his own words Eli, Eli, Lema Sabakhtani. Is a direct quotation from Psalm 22. What can it mean? We will meditate on Psalm 22 later, but clearly Jesus is pointing to that remarkable psalm as echoing his his experience. King David said it, but Jesus quotes it. What is he actually saying? I think he's saying he is forsaken. The Son of God, having lived through all eternity in close fellowship with the Father, now experiences something that he had never experienced before. Um, a, A broken fellowship. The light of the presence of his Father gone from him. And it must have been awful, forsaken. We often say pushed out of. The presence of God. And you notice in that line, just want to stay on this, that line is a question. Why have you forsaken me? Why? I don't know if you've ever meditated on that, but There is a hint here of of Job, the the relatively innocent Job. He's stripped of his health and his wealth and his family and he asks why. And Jesus asks the question why. Because he knows he's innocent and yet he is forsaken. Why is he pushed out? All the clues now in the Gospels tell us or begin to remind us. So chapter 1 tells us that he will save his people from their sins. Chapter 20 tells us that the Son of Man will give his life as a ransom for many. And so he is pushed out of the presence of God, bearing the sin of the world. That's what Isaiah will tell us. That's what other parts of the Gospel tell us. But that's what Matthew tells us. He is a ransom for many. But what what did that mean? And, And we're in a bit of a mystery here. And I can't go too far. But it seems that as he was pushed out and he said, Why have you forsaken me? The light of the presence of God, his father, was withdrawn from him. And to be bearing the sin of people, there was a moment where he did not know why. It sounds odd, doesn't it? You you, you keep thinking Jesus is completely in control of everything. But to bear the sin of the world and to be pushed out of the presence of God, it's why? Why? The second word, on the other hand, is the loud cry. It is finished. Matthew switches scenes. We're immediately at the temple. The torn curtain. uh, He is pushed out of God's presence. He is forsaken. But the torn curtain, of course, tells us that we can come in. Access to God is opened. He is pushed out. We are welcomed in. Our lives are ransomed. But just for a moment... I know we rejoice in that. Look at the cost. He lost everything at that moment. He lost his relationship. And he, he lost the light of the presence of God so that he entered the darkness of not knowing. And I think many people have found that cry on the cross to be really helpful when they are a bewildered believer not knowing why they're going through things. Such a powerful cry. Why? That's what it was for him at that moment. Truly bearing our sin. Truly in the dark so that we could be in the light. Finally, there are two witnesses, or there are two groups of witnesses. The first, of course, completely misunderstand the cross, and often we speak about them. Um, Eli, Eli, sounds like Elijah, Elijah. They think he's calling Elijah, and they mock him. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. But there's another group, and guess who they are? The soldiers, Centurion, and the guard. They had seen some things that day. They had seen Jesus silently, willingly going to his suffering. They had experienced the darkness in the middle of the day. They had felt an earthquake They had heard that cry of desolation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the loud cry, probably it is finished. And it terrified them. Maybe they had done the wrong thing. Had they induced heaven's anger? But whatever it is, they cry out with a meaning that has a double meaning. As we've seen in Matthew's Gospel. Surely he was the son of God. Surely he was the son of God. It's quite striking, isn't it? The people who declare the truth at that moment are not Jewish people. Not the religious people. Total outsiders. And that's who are welcomed in, those very people. And soon, in, in, a, in a few years, the gospel of Jesus would reach Rome and Roman Christians would become believers. Put all the three talks together and we have been looking at the most important event in history. And to help you, I want you to imagine a photograph that you have seen in your newspapers or on the screen, television screens, uh, over these past few days. It's a picture of Notre Dame in, 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 in the wreckage of Notre Dame with the fire still burning and the smoke around and a crumbling edifice uh, falling apart. And then at the back, there is this golden cross. You've seen that picture? It's amazing, isn't it? And I think it is the most powerful symbol that amidst all the wreckage and rubble of our lives and when we feel our life crumbling... There you see the cross. And when you hear that cry on the cross, you, you realize again what that really, really means. Elizabeth Barrett Browning uh, wrote a poem, a eulogy on Cowper's grave. Now, Cowper was a hymn writer, but he suffered deeply from depression. And at times he felt that God had left him And her poem says no, no. What the cross means is this, and I'll read you these final verses. Yea, once, Emmanuel's orphaned cry, his universe hath shaken. It went up single echoless, my God, I am forsaken. It went up from the Holy's lips amidst his lost creation that of the lost no son should use those words of desolation. We'll have a moment's quiet as we perhaps reflect on Psalm 22. If we want to look at a scripture or just think of the words we have heard. Psalm 22 is on page 554. Let's just be quiet for a moment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? Verse 16 Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me, they pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots of my raiment. Verse 27. future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it.